decided to switch my recording space from the basement to the shed. It is an upgrade. I'm telling you guys, I'm going to actually put a picture up in the Facebook page. I think it might be a little bit too echoey, though. In my quest to find a decent place to record, uh, it has been, (laughs) as I've gotten more excited and more passionate about this podcast, I found it myself thinking, staying up at night, not being able to sleep, thinking about all kinds of details I never thought I'd have to think about. Like, where am I going to record that's better? Because in that basement, those of you who've heard the first few episodes, you know, man, I mean, we were uh, hearing like everything from babies crying to footsteps stomping to uh, just everything. Every time someone flushed the toilet, because I was sitting right underneath all of the pipes from the bathroom, everything. And so you could hear every little noise that happened. And so I thought, you know what? If I'm going to get serious about this, I got to get some kind of recording space that isn't going to be quite so loud. And so I moved here to the shed, which is, I think it's going to be a more quiet place to record. The only thing I'm concerned about is it as I'm just talking in here, it definitely feels a little bit more echoey. So I'm going to see how this one sounds. Uh, I, I oh, oh, by the way, I do want to thank everyone who's been encouraging encouraging me with this podcast. Like you guys have been so nice and sharing and supporting. I'm glad that you've been encouraged and that you're you're um, learning and growing in your walk with the Lord. And uh, it seems especially that this this last interview that I had with Jonna, if you haven't listened to episode three, make sure you go back and listen to it because uh, the first two episodes, they were bios like today is going to be. And then that one was an interview and people really responded. It's It already has more downloads just right off the bat. Like the other episodes, it's been sort of like a trickle of people downloading each day, but that one was just like a whole bunch of people wanted to listen to the interview so that I I hear you. And so I I realized that for a lot of people, the interview is something that interviews might be something that you're really excited about. And I would love to hear from you if you want to just make some comments on the, the Facebook page, the Revival Carriers Facebook page, or just uh, give me what is it that you like? What what have you liked so far? And uh, so I like I said, I hear you and people are responding to this interview. And so I'm actually setting up more interviews. And my thought right now, because these uh, episodes like this one that are the bios where we talk about historical people, they take a tremendous amount of research and reading books because I don't want to just go online and just find some article and then just sort of read little details from the article. I want to make sure that I get really good information that isn't common knowledge, that's a little bit different. And so I read books. Like for this one, for for John Knox, I read, uh, this book was hundreds of pages, and I stayed up hours and hours reading and taking notes and reading articles and finding everything I could to try and make the most comprehensive sort of informational podcast, encouraging podcast that I can for all of you guys. And so in order to maintain that quality, I was thinking like, if if you all enjoy these interviews as well, then what I might start doing, if I can get enough guests, if I can keep up, uh, keep up getting my friends to come on or other interesting people to come on and do interviews with me, then what I'm thinking about starting to do is do one week a bio podcast and then the other week an interview and that way I'll do be doing bio podcast every two weeks and that gives me two weeks to really prepare something really solid for all of you. 
and have something that's got uh, really good substance and really solid research behind it. And so that's what I'm thinking about doing. We're going to go for it. And as we all grow together in this podcast, we will see how things go. But I do have a very, very interesting uh, couple that I'm hoping will be able to come on. I've already contacted them about doing the next podcast after this one, an interview. They are missionaries down in Mexico, and I've known them for several years. They're really amazing people. Uh, I don't want to reveal their names just yet in case the scheduling doesn't work, but just I just want you to know that that is in the making. That said, I just want to thank all of the those of you who have been supporting this podcast and sharing it and telling other people about it. It is so awesome. I feel like, I almost feel like there's like this community that's kind of coming together because the fact is like, I realize this isn't going to be one of those topics. It's like one of the most popular podcasts in the world. I realize that like revival history and interviews with ministers or interesting Christian people who are having an impact and influence in their area, like these aren't exactly topics that are going to attract multitudes of people who are going to want to listen. So I really appreciate every single one of you who have been downloading these podcasts and listening and giving me advice and suggestions, and especially those of you who have supported it in different ways. Uh, I mean, we actually, I've started to be able to upgrade the equipment a little bit. I have a new microphone on the way that I'm super excited about. It should be much better than this one that I've been using, the the blue snowball, which I have appreciated for the first few episodes, but it will definitely be really nice to have a little bit more professional mic to use and also, um, oh, what else is it? I'm trying to remember. I, I ordered something else. What was it? We got the microphone and, oh, great. This is going to drive me crazy. Well, anyway, I'm sure it's going to come back to me in just a minute. So I want to thank all of you who have really supported this podcast and just uh, really encouraged me. And so uh, as I was trying to say, like, this isn't one of those things, this po- those podcasts that I'm going to have like thousands and thousands of listeners who, and I'm going to be able to attract sponsors and be able to fund it this way. It really has to be through the few of you that listen. Like we've we've gone from the ones of listeners in our first podcast. And now we're up to dozens of listeners. And I'm hoping that over the next few months, as I keep doing this and we keep learning together and growing together, we can go to get into the hundreds of listeners. And that's, I know that isn't even technically a a successful podcast in the podcast world. But uh, what it does, though, is it allows us to have this community together where we're seeking revival and we're seeking the Lord. And so if you do want to financially support this podcast, uh, because I'm never going to, ha- I can't imagine there being a point when we have enough listeners that I have like sponsors and stuff. And I would really prefer to avoid anything like that anyway. But it, so if it has to be listener supported, if you want to support this podcast, what I'm going to do is I'm going to put some links in the description. So whenever you're done listening after all this, you can just click on one of those links and you can just support however you like. Oh man. Oh, now I remember. So the the other thing that I, I was able to upgrade, I actually got some studio monitoring headphones, which was just another suggestion I was given that uh, is supposed to really help the audio quality. I've never used it before. It sounds like it's going to be I don't know, to me, it seems like a little bit complicated because I've never done this before, but everyone's like, oh no, it's amazing. You have to have it because apparently 
having these monitoring headphones, these like professional studio monitoring headphones that what they'll allow me to do is listen to this as I record and actually I can actually like listen to the quality of it. So I still have a couple other pieces I want to get. Like I want to get another microphone, a second microphone for interviews and one of those Zoom H6s or H4s that allow me to like plug in multiple mics and, and record on the field. But for now, this is what we got. So anyway, let's get into this. Today, we're going to be looking at a man named John Knox. And what I love about doing this podcast is that it allows me this freedom to really not only go really deep into these bios with people and really look at lives, but it also, uh, it allows me to look and us together to look at kind of the bad side of things, right? Like, like there are people throughout history who are kind of like, like Solomon. You know how Solomon, if you read his story in scripture, he started off really strong. God asked him what he wanted, basically saying, hey, I'll give you anything that you want. And Solomon asked for wisdom, and and God blessed him, and so he had wisdom, and he writes Proverbs, and he writes uh, all of these different things, and he's one of the most powerful rulers, and in history, uh, according to history books and like exchanges of uh, money and how much money he had in Scripture, he, to this even today, would have been the most wealthy man in history if he was alive today. And so he started off so well, but then he married all of these foreign women and ended up in idolatry and really didn't end well. And a lot of times whenever I teach, whenever we do church services or conferences or anything like that, because time is such an issue and because people are they're there to be encouraged and lifted up, a lot of times we, we just are able to focus on only the positives and if you listen to my, my interview with Jonna, you'll hear how I talk I talk about how a lot of times people, they have this fantasy of what ministry is like or what life life for ministers is like and how people like me and, or other missionaries or other people are who have been on the field or doing things for a long time. There's this, kind of this idea that they just sort of float around and uh, they're always just hearing from God and everything is wonderful and we just sort of live in this bubble and don't really face real life. And a lot of times that is because whenever you read a book about somebody, you generally only get the highlights, like those little biographies about people, you only get the good stuff about them usually. And, uh, or whenever you hear like in a church service, and I do this as well, because you have like 30 minutes to preach a sermon, you usually can't go into all the nitty gritty things. And so uh, what ends up happening is people like John Knox, who we're going to talk about today, he had a lot of flaws, a ton of flaws. Like compared to John Welch, who we talked about in episode two, John Knox, even though he had a bigger impact than John Welch did, John Knox, he kind of faded from history because of his many, many problems and issues, which we're going to go into. And I love that. I love, I love talking about real people, real life. Like this is what it's really like. It isn't all just rainbows and all the things that people have this idea where everything is just happy and peaceful. Like there are real struggles and and there are sin issues and there are, um, what's the word? There are theological issues that are, are really, really prevalent in some people's lives where they're so blinded that they don't even understand. They, 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 they have been blinded by sin issues like bitterness or anger, things that have happened to them. It changes their view of God and their view of people. And 
it, uh, it really affects their ministry. And so John Knox, he's kind of like a Solomon in the sense that he started off really well, but then there were some big things that happened in his life, which we'll, we'll talk about here in a minute, and that completely changed him. And even though he, he completely changed Scotland during the Reformation, he was a man full of flaws. He was a man with all kinds of issues. And so uh, we've, we talked about John Knox before just a little bit in the episode with John Welch because they both had these incredible impacts on Scotland. They were also both hated by King James VI, who commissioned the King James Bible. Again, more on that in the podcast number episode number two, if you want to learn about the King, King James Bible and how that kind of came about. But King James said in a paraphrase, which I'm paraphrasing, that there had never been a pair of troublemakers like John Knox and John Welch. And he said that he was actually thankful that there wasn't a third man in their group or he would have never been able to run his kingdom. Now, John Welch, of course, if you listen to episode two, you know that he was married to Elizabeth Knox, which who was uh, John Knox's daughter. Now, John Welch, he was really like squeaky clean. And now a lot of that, I would have to say, a lot of that is because there is very there there's very little information about John Welch. John Knox, I mean, it seems like almost every detail of his entire life was recorded in some way or another, which shows the impact that he had. Like everything he did was watched. People hung on to his words. He had lots of followers. And so while John Welch, on the other hand, he was more of like a prophet on the outskirts. And he had a huge impact, but not like John Knox did. He wasn't this mega famous preacher. He caused his own issues. He caused. He obviously said enough that that King James hated him, but he didn't have the reach that Knox had. And so, uh, because of that, Knox was much more prominent, much more famous, but also much more controversial. He was known, and actually still is known in the history books, as a misogynist. He hated women, didn't value them. At least that's what people say. Some people say he hated women, but we're actually going to look into that. It, but it, it, it is actually because of that, well, there are some other things too that we'll talk about, but largely because of his viewpoint on women has John Knox not really been listened to, especially in modern history as time went by. He has kind of faded out. Now, he's still really known in like Scotland and England, but in North America, especially in Latin America, different places I've gone, John Knox is not somebody who's talked about. And it, it is largely because of his view on women. Also, he was really, really strict. Like some people would have said even had, like, like if you're a Pentecostal charismatic, they would say he had a religious spirit because he was super, super strict. And he also promoted up violent uprisings and rebellion, things that are not really like taught by the average pastor today. He did not teach turning the other cheek, which the we'll, we'll get into his reasoning behind that. But he he did all he did so many things that were kind of the opposite, not kind of the opposite. They were the opposite of what the Bible actually teaches. And so for those reasons and possibly other reasons that we might not even get into in this podcast, while he was a major player during the Reformation, he's largely faded from church history outside of Scotland and England. And most people in the States have never heard of him. And uh, so 
he if you haven't heard of him, him before, I do I do want to say this. There is so much information about John Knox. And as I was researching, as I was I read uh, this giant book, which I'll put I'll put the my source notes in the the episode notes of this. So if you want to look at where I got my information from, you can check it out in the notes in the podcast, which you should be able to see pretty openly if you just click on the podcast on your app or whatever. It should pop up with the notes, and so uh, I read uh, a book this really thick book on him, as I mentioned earlier, several articles. And the thing is, John Knox, just because of the way records were kept in the early 1500s, which is where this story starts, in the early, I just should say in the 1500s in general, the dates are not 100% accurate. So just know that there, I read in this, the book that I read would give some dates on, and then I would go read an article online and they would get different dates. And so most of what I go by comes straight from the book because the woman who wrote the book, she did tons and tons of research. It's, if you want to check it out, it's called it's just called John Knox by a woman named Jane Dawson. And there, there are others, uh, the works of John Knox by the Perfect Library. I also read that book as well and several articles. And so because records were not perfect in the 1500s, just be aware if you listen to this and then I say, you know, for example, John. whenever John Knox was born, they actually don't have, really have records of when he was born. So he was born somewhere between 1505 and 1515, which means that a lot of things... There, you have to give a little bit of a, a gap in, in I guess I would say give some grace in the date. So if you I say something and then you read in another book or another article, oh, well, this actually happened two years different from what Alan said, well, just no, that's why. It's because there, the, the, there is, are variations in what the books and articles say. But let's just, uh, we're just going to go largely with the book John Knox, and then I have some other information from other articles as well. So John, uh, oh, oh, sorry, before I continue on, that what I was going to say is I really recommend that if you want to know more, I because there is so much information on him, I had to leave out giant portions of his life. I mean, there there are big details that I just couldn't put in just because this, this podcast would be hours and hours long. So if you want to know more, I highly recommend that you get the book, John Knox, and read that. That seems to be the, the favorite book about his life by a lot of scholars. It's really well researched. So this is kind of a condensed version of his life. So he was born between 1505 and 1515. We don't really know for sure because the Scots in those days, they didn't really keep records of births. They actually didn't keep records of baptisms either. But he, we do know that he was born on a street called Gifford Gate in the town of Haddington, Scotland. And the, the street runs right along the River Tyne. John Knox's birth, birthplace is actually memorialized, sorry, memorialized by an oak tree between houses five and seven. So if you ever go to Haddington, Scotland, or you happen to be from there, and you go to Gifford Gate Street, go look for houses five and seven and look for that oak tree. Now, John Calvin, he was one of the main leaders during the Reformation. He was born in 1509, and John Knox followed Calvin for his entire ministry life. 
So while Martin Luther sparked the Reformation, John Calvin was actually became the most influential teacher in Europe. Calvinism was the was the dominant theology until William Carey came and challenged it in the 1700s. Now Calvinism, uh, I, I won't go into all of the details on that, but Calvinism now has largely lost most of its strength that it had during the 1500s and 1600s. Uh, largely because, well, because of William Carey. William Carey is known as the father of modern missions. And Calvinism, while John Calvin did a lot of good things, he also did a lot of bad things, and along with many of the reformers, actually. And But John Calvin was the one who introduced the theology or the doctrine of predestination. And even John Knox produced tracts and other teachings on predestination, so predestination was not something that was believed by the early church. It wasn't something that was believed until John Calvin came along and he taught it. And I think that we'll probably do a podcast later on. It won't be anytime soon because after this podcast, I plan on moving away from the Reformation for a little bit and doing teachings on some other people that I have in mind as well. But just know Calvinism, which largely is known for its teaching on predestination to the point that... Uh, everything that you believe or everything that you do, even to the point of whether you get saved or not saved, was predestined before you were ever born. And a lot of people can argue with that, argue with that. I'm not here to get in debates about that. But I will say that the result of that teaching was that because Calvinism became the dominant belief in the 15 and 1600s in the church and predestination that belief that you can't even choose, like there is no free will. You can't even choose whether you come to Christ or not. There was a prevailing thought throughout the church, which was why send missionaries out? Why go if they can't actually have an effect? God will save them or not save them regardless of whether missionaries go or do not go. And so there was actually almost a complete halt in missions for like, like over a hundred years, about two hundred years, because of the belief of Calvinism, and then whenever William Carey came along in the seventeen hundreds, and he believed that God was calling him to be a missionary in India, and he challenged the belief of the average Calvinist, which was the main denomination in those days. He challenged the Calvinist doctrine about missions and basically obliterated that teaching that we should not go because everything is predestined. And he basically did a mic drop and wrote a book all about how that theology was wrong and how God has called us to be, how God has called people to preach the gospel of Christ and extend the kingdom of God. And then he went to India as a missionary and it revolutionized the Christian world in that time. And mission started again in the modern mission and it moves all the way into the modern mission missionary movement that we have right now. So, but just know that that, that uh, John Knox, he followed John Calvin, and they were, they were ministry friends, and uh, so th- those are some of the things that he believed. But on the other hand, like I said, Calvinism, whether or not you agree with it, in those days, that was the dominant belief. And so because John Calvin was a big voice throughout Europe, John Knox, for him, that was kind of like, Calvin was like one of his heroes. And so whenever he had the opportunity and John Calvin took him under his wing, he uh, naturally, like most people do, whenever someone takes the time to 
disciple them, they're going to follow that person. And so that's what John Knox did, and he was a Calvinist his entire life. So uh, the Reformation, if you don't know, the Reformation began... So just quickly to recap, I really recommend you listen to episode two if you haven't, because that'll give you some more background information on this. But basically, the Catholic Church was the dominant... It was the only real, uh, I guess you could call it, denomination in the Christian world at that time. And then they were they were believing and following all kinds of wrong theology, all kinds of unbiblical practices, like paying indulgences, which is whenever people would go to a priest and give them money in order for them to uh, like pray for their grandma who died, and whenever because they would give them money. The, basically, the amount of money that they would give would like take years off of their time in hell or purgatory or whatever, whatever it was back then. And so Martin Luther came along, and he was not the first one. There were other reformers before him, but he was the one. He was a German man who came, and he nailed what's called the 95 Thesis to a church door in 1517 whenever John Knox was just, was just a young boy, roughly about three years old. And Martin Luther, those ni- it was 95 points that he said were unscriptural, and it, it really was the spark that lit what's called the Reformation, which was people realizing that what the Catholic Church was teaching was unscriptural and forming what we would now call Protestant churches or evangelical churches. They're called Protestant churches because they were protesting the things that the Catholic Church was doing. And so John Knox was born really into this Reformation movement, into this world. Whenever John... The world that John was born into was very, very different from what it would be when he died. The Catholic Church was like this this seemingly unstoppable juggernaut. Royalty listened to them. People followed everything they said, especially because Scripture, most Scripture was only in Latin. The only Bible that you could get that wasn't in Latin was illegal at the time. So people couldn't even read scripture. The common people couldn't speak Latin. So they had, it was kind of a control thing where they could only get their information on God from Catholic priests who could speak Latin. And they they didn't know Bible. They didn't know what the scripture said or anything like that. And so there were illegal translations being done. And the, the royals at the time, they were, there was so much persecution happening, all these different things. It was just a crazy, crazy time for the church. And Knox was born into this, this time when the Catholic church was the only sanctioned denomination and everyone else was persecuted and often executed. So he we were, even though, uh, even though he was born somewhere between 1505 and 1515. We're just going to, let's just say 1515 just for the sake of the argument, right? So just to give you some ideas, some other things that were happening in the year 1517, whenever the Reformation started, whenever Martin Luther nailed that thesis, the conquistador Diego Valesquez de Cuellar, if you speak Spanish, (laughs) he, uh, I speak Spanish in my house all the time with my wife because she's Panamanian. So uh, you you can try it, give it your own Cuellar if you want to try but that man, that conquistador, Diego, he founded Havana in what is modern-day Cuba in that same, that same year. And then moved, he moved to its, the, the, the capital was moved to the current location in 1519. Also, the Jews were expelled from Laibach, Austria. 
Teresa of Avila, who I, I want to do a, a podcast on. She's a very interesting person. She was a Spanish Carmelite nun, poet, and saint. She was born, well, when I say saint, she, was, she has been, uh, what's the word, canonized as a Catholic saint. But as, again, if you listen to my episode one on St. Patrick, you'll know I talk about how a, a lot of times we miss out on some amazing men and women of God because just because the Catholic Church branded them as a saint and then they make all these, these pictures of them and stained glass images and all these things. And so people in the Protestant and evangelical churches, we don't pay any attention to them when a lot of times they didn't they never sought to be saints. They they were believers, they were Christians, and then their legacy has kind of been um, uh, it's been overshadowed by the acts the idolatry of the Catholic Church. And so I like to study some of these people because they're they're amazing, amazing people of, of God who loved Jesus. And so anyway, she was born, Teresa of Avila, she was born on March 28th. And also just another interesting fact, Michelangelo completed the Sistine Chapel ceiling paintings in 1512, and then Michelangelo actually died in 1564 in Rome. So he actually would have been alive and active as an artist during most of Knox's life. So just think about that. Like, I, I really like to have this perspective of all of these different things that were happening. So John Knox... He, he grew up in a family of merchants, of merchants, but he wasn't the eldest, so he was never going to inherit the family business, and he didn't know, he didn't know what he was going to do, so he had to find a way to sustain himself one day. And because he was a fam, from a family of merchants, John Knox, he went to grammar school, and of course, as he's a young child, knowing that he's not going to inherit what his, his father's business, he realizes, okay, I got to find something that I can do with my life. And because if you listen to episode two, you know that grammar school was the school for rich kids where they learned reading, writing, and arithmetic, but especially learned on, on uh, focused on learning Latin. So John, he could read, write, and speak Latin his whole life. Grammar school was actually designed to prepare students to become priests. And because, again, he wasn't going to get his father's business, he decided to go into the priesthood. So John Knox was actually ordained in 1536 in Edinburgh by a man named William Chisholm. And he started out as a deacon and was later promoted to a priest. According to his biography, the family of this man, this man William Chisholm, the, the man that ordained John, actually became one of his biggest opponents later in life, which is that must have been really difficult because whenever you have someone who like raises you and they disciple you, I know this, I've been through this myself. A lot of people have been through the same thing. They know exactly what I'm talking about. When you have somebody that you look up to, they disciple you and then you make a change and suddenly they turn on you. It's, it's really horrible. And so th- that was just his upbringing. We're not going to spend a lot of time on that. We have a, his, his life. There's so much to, to talk about that I don't want to spend a lot of time on his childhood. So in the early 1540s, everything began to change for John. Up until that point, he had been a priest. And as a priest, remember that going to grammar school was only for rich kids because only the, the wealthy were trained to be priests because priests 
the a lot of the Catholic Church was just a business, as we've seen a lot in the modern day church today. It's it is just sort of a business. And so as being part of the Catholic Church and being a priest, and he actually had a solid job as a notary for the Catholic Church. And so because he was a notary, he had a steady job. He was actually a pretty well-off man. But in the year 1542, King James V, the King of Scotland, he died. His army had been defeated disastrously. It was this this whole whole ordeal, and he actually got sick. Now, King James V, he was, uh, interestingly enough, he was a, a friend of the Reformation. But because of this defeat that he had, he got sick. And some people say that it was a nervous breakdown because of the defeat of his army. Some say that he died of grief. People don't really know. Some other people said that he died of a flu or some other, some other sickness. But whenever that happened, his six-day-old daughter, Mary, this, now you're going to hear about Mary, Queen of the Scots, throughout this podcast because she was a major player throughout John Knox's life. So whenever you hear about her, remember that she was coronated as the Queen of Scotland when she was only six days old after her father died. So whenever her father died, Scotland was in chaos. France and England were fighting over the whole mainland. Scotland was struggling because their king died. They were losing. And so they became allied with France, and France became the protector of Scotland. So there was this interesting alliance between France and Scotland during this time against England. Now, somewhere in there, Knox converted from Catholicism to Protestantism. Uh, It seems like he converted pretty slowly because... I mean, he was trained to be a Catholic priest his whole life. That was, from the time he was a child, he was going to be a Catholic priest. I can't imagine what it would take for someone who had grown up like Knox did to convert from Catholicism. It seems like he converted fairly slowly because while he was still serving as a notary for the Catholic Church, at some point, he began to sign his official papers with... His signature was like this, a faithful witness through Christ to, to, to whom be the glory. Amen. So we know that there was some kind of change during his younger years where he was working as a priest and a notary that there was because of everything that was happening and Protestants were the, the, the belief of the Protestants the was growing. That church was having a huge effect. He was still a, a Catholic priest. But something touched him, and he started to lean toward becoming a Protestant and started leaning away from the Catholic beliefs. It seems like he must have become like fully converted, completely gave his life to Jesus in 1546. This is what the scholars think, but there's some division on it. But I'll, I'll tell you why I, I also think that this seems like it's the most likely time because there was a man named George Wishart, and he was one of the early Scottish leaders of the Reformation before Knox. And we'll do another podcast on George Wishart another day, so I don't want to go too deep into his story. But just know that he was he was seen as 
a powerful prophet. People, uh, he definitely heard from the Holy Spirit. He had a relationship that seemed, from what I have read about him during my research here on Knox, the man was, was pretty awesome. He was extremely influential in Scotland, and John Knox actually had an opportunity to meet him and was so touched by his ministry that for whatever reason, we there's no record that I know of of that meeting, that first initial meeting between Knox and Wishart, that whatever it was, whether John heard him preach or whether John prayed for him, we don't know. But what we do know is that he was so touched by the ministry that he wanted to be part of it. And so he did what a lot of people do whenever they want to be discipled by their heroes. I know I've done this. He figured out creative ways to be around his hero, hoping to be noticed by him. Now, for me, what I've learned, if you're out there and you're like, oh man, I wish this person would disciple me, or oh man, I wish I could minister with someone like Heidi Baker or Bill Johnson or whoever it is, let me just give you a piece of advice because I've been in ministry now for 20 years on the mission field. And I have met and been around, all, I would say, all of my living heroes I have spent some time with now. And I have learned, those people are busy, man. Like, they they are running around. I, it used to annoy me because I would go to these conferences. Like, I, I would hear someone, someone that I really looked, looked up to was going to be preaching and you know how it is. A lot of times you go to these conferences, and the person they don't come into the they don't come into the church service until halfway through worship, and then they preach. And as soon as they preach, they leave. And so you never get an opportunity to actually talk to them. Now I understand a bit more now that I'm older. Now that I've I've never been famous by any means, but the, I, I do preach quite a bit. And one thing I do know is that whenever you preach in a church service especially if you're like the visiting speaker that people are excited to see, what often happens is there are usually in a church two or three people who are like the ones that take all of the attention. They want all of the attention. And so whenever you're the speaker, usually the people who are who really are interested in getting to know you and actually want to spend time with you, those people oftentimes will talk to the pastor, which is what I'm going to suggest to you, that you talk to the pastor and ask if you can have a meeting with the person, ask them for some questions. Because what happens is if you wait until the church service and you you wait for the service to be over and hope for that opportunity, because a lot of these people, they finish the service and they immediately leave. And the reason why is because they get this rush of people and usually the first people that are there are the two or three attention hogs. And those two or three people will stand there and talk to them for like an hour. And so a lot of times people will try not the, these well-known speakers there. It's not that they're trying to be rude or mean. They're just trying not to get trapped by the attention hogs who a lot of times, and I can tell you from personal experience, I've preached all over the world now and usually those people are people who have no interest in actually learning or being really being prayed for or anything like that. What they want is they want to preach at you. And they either want to criticize you or tell you why you're doing things wrong. And they'll just, what they want is they want attention. And so it, it, uh, what happens is these preachers, they generally will defer to the pastor and the pastor will kind of will often take them to do like home visits. I know that's what happens with me is I end up 
during the church service, I don't spend a lot of time with people because I know there's going to be like two people who are just going to go on and on and on and not give anybody else an opportunity. So I'll go visit people in, in their homes or I'll go to hospitals. I spend a lot, a lot of time in hospitals praying for people or uh, just praying for the sick or praying for, for people. And that's whenever you actually get a chance to talk. So if you want to meet your hero, you got to come up with creative ways. Uh, nowadays, the best way is to talk to the leader of the church and tell them who you are and just ask if you can have a few minutes of their time of the speaker's time. And the pastor is actually the one who's going to be able to set up a time for you, whoever's organizing the meeting. And so uh, just a little, a little tip for you. Because of that, I have been able to have dinner with some heroes of mine and ask some que- burning questions and all of those kinds of things. So that'll help you out. If you are a if you're one of those people who's serious is serious about being discipled, you got to be persistent. You got to find ways. And now, now John Knox, he was one of those persistent people. And it doesn't matter if it's the 1500s or 2020. People who are serving Jesus are busy people. And Wishart was one of those busy people. He had a very, very hectic schedule. He was constantly traveling, constantly preaching, and so because of that. It was Knox was not able to just get a meeting with him as far as we know. So what Knox did, think about this, think about this creativity. This this cracks me up. John Knox was always a very theatrical person. And so what Knox did was he he borrowed a claymore, which if you don't know what a claymore is, it is one of those giant two-handed swords that are almost as tall as a person. That you they would usually be tall enough to reach the knight's chin. Now, now Knox was not not only was he not a knight he didn't know how to fight but he borrowed a claymore and declared himself George Wishart's personal bodyguard and so because Wishart was a a known very famous persecuted heretic and people were often attacking him there uh, during the reformation there was a lot of social unrest a lot of riots a lot of big uh fighting and things like that and so some of these these Protestant leaders, they had armed guards. And so John Knox, he took it upon himself to be George Wishart's armed guard with no fight experience. But because he was so dramatic, what he would do is he would walk before George. He would walk before Mr. Wishart with his gigantic sword and swing it back, back and forth to make way for George to walk because there were a, another thing about people who have anointing on their lives is they often attract crowds. Not all of them do. Some of them are just their prayer warriors, but people who are called to public ministry like George Wishart was, he attracted crowds. And so John would swing his sword back and forth to open up space for him through the crowds to walk. And uh, eventually there was an actual skirmish that happened and John's, as, as theatrical as he was, his inability to actually fight became obvious and the sword was taken from him. But he had called enough attention to himself that George Wishart at least appreciated his enthusiasm and he invited Knox to be part of his traveling group, his traveling entourage of of speakers and volunteers, just like people do today. Uh, people like Randy Clark, who I, I have a lot of respect for. He's an awesome, awesome man. And how 
He goes down to places like Brazil and he'll just take a team with him and a bunch of them, a bunch of the people who go, they're interns or people who are learning. And so Knox, who had was still a Catholic priest legally, as far as we know, I mean, once you were a Catholic priest in those days, you always were, like you were legally a Catholic priest forever. So Knox is still a Catholic priest who had converted to, Protestant, to, to be a Protestant, Protestant, it's so hard to say Protestantism, and he, but he got invited to go basically on a mission trip with George Wishart, and he spent five weeks, that was it, five weeks with George on the mission. And like it is still today with well-known speakers who carry revival, I mean, George's schedule was hectic and tiring, and John had was part of all of that, and he cherished every moment of it. But after only five weeks, Wishart, who had a prophetic gift, he sensed that his time of martyrdom was coming. And so he actually went to Knox and some, uh, his, some of his other, I guess you could call them interns, and told them to leave, to go back home. And John, he wanted to stay, but George actually said to him, and I'm going to read the original, it says, Nay, return to your barns, which I assume means your home, and God bless you, because one is sufficient for a sacrifice. So he knew that he was going to die. So John, he left, he returned home, and then not long after that, the, the Catholic Cardinal David Beaton had George Wishart arrested and thrown into prison in St. Andrew's Castle. And Cardinal Beaton actually then sentenced Wishart to death and had him burned at the stake in front of the castle gates. And this, when this happened, this this happened not long after the five weeks Knox had spent with him. So you can imagine being with your hero and one of the few cases where your hero is actually everything you wanted him to be, because that's why there is that saying, don't meet your heroes, because your heroes are usually not what you expect them to, what you think they are. And... Uh, I can tell you that from personal experience. Guys, I've met a lot of my heroes, and some, some of them were amazing, and some of them were disappointing. And that's just that's just the truth of how it is. But Knox was not disappointed. And then after he spends five weeks with his hero, he uh, his hero is burned at the stake in front of the, the gates at St. Andrew Ca- Andrew's Castle. And J- uh, John Knox, he felt extreme guilt over this because he wasn't with George when it happened. He, he felt and expressed that he felt like Peter when he denied Christ. And this is a, a guilt that he actually lived through. He lived, it, it was like a cloud over him for many, many years. And John, he was a very dramatic man and he was a very emotional man. And he frequently, frequently struggled with depression and would go through really dark, dark times of depression, which that is something, again, that a lot of ministers don't talk about. There was a whole survey done, and I I don't want to just throw out a number because I can't remember the exact number, but there is a shocking percentage of pastors and missionaries who regularly struggle with depression. That's why nowadays we keep hearing on the news about pastors who are committing suicide, and it's because there's a lot of ministers, they feel very lonely, because it's hard to have friends when you're in ministry. I know this, again, from experience. I've been in ministry for 20 years. It is very difficult to have just a friendship, an open friendship when you're in ministry, because pretty much, like in my case, for a long time, the only people that I knew were either fellow ministers who are not people you can, I know this is going to sound odd if you're not a minister, but they aren't really people that you can open up to, or people who are coming to me for ministry. So then who do you go to? 
Now, thankfully, someone gave me some advice and told me to uh, to find friends who had absolutely nothing to do with ministry, who were completely separate. And so I have one or two very, very close friends now who aren't in ministry at all. And, and it's wonderful because there are people that I can just talk about and be open with. And so if you're a minister and you're listening to this, I give you that same advice. Find somebody, not necessarily that they're not a minister, but someone who is not associated with your ministry, uh, not associated with your church or the ministry that you are in, and not associated with, with your circle, someone that just you can completely be open with. And John, I don't think he ever had that. John Knox... The, the In ministry, the more famous and well-known that you get, the harder it is to find that. And he was so influential. I don't think John ever had that. So he was going through these dark bouts of depression, but having going through that experience inspired him to be like his hero. And so George Wishart, he had moved so accurately in prophecy that John... He felt like moving in prophecy was the true mark of a man of God, and that was what he pursued. Now, his concept of the prophetic was very different from how we see the prophetic. In modern-day Christianity, most people see the prophetic today as giving like words of knowledge or like declaring the future. John Knox felt like moving in prophecy was more like being like kind of like an Old Testament prophet, so much so... And remember, John was a very dramatic man, as I've said many times. And so he he saw it as, he saw a prophet as like a very, uh, someone who held up the law, somebody who was extreme. So, and things that are true in a sense, but he took it to to quite an extreme. And, but he also decided to embody what a prophet looked like. And because the prophet, the only prophet that he knew was George Wishart, he, he decided to emulate the look of Wishart, so much so that he grew out his beard out to his waist, just like Wishart did, and he started preaching that he changed his, uh, whenever he did start to preach, because he wasn't preaching right away, but whenever he did start to preach, he preached in the same style as George did, he preached on the same topics that George did, and he just took on the mannerisms of George, which is not a bad thing, I will tell you. Whenever you're discipled by somebody, it's best if you start off imitating what you see in another man of God doing. That's that's biblical. Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. But the idea is always that you go beyond the person discipling you, that eventually you start doing things your own way and you, you build on the foundation of the person who's discipling you. So for the next few years, or I should, sorry, the next few months, John was a teacher he, I, this is this is something a lot of people go through, right? They feel a call to ministry, but they still have a job. And he was still teaching Latin in the grammar school. And he knew he was called to preach, but he felt he wasn't worthy. He was still going through depression. He felt he wasn't worthy because he had, had abandoned Wishart to die. However, because of his association with George Wishart, he was branded a heretic by the Catholic Church, and the pressure got worse and worse against him and other branded heretics until just a few months later when friends of George Wishart, they, out of vengeance, snuck into St. Andrew's Castle by pretending to be Masons and stabbed Cardinal Beaton David beaten to death in his bed and then threw him out of the castle window. And this, in this incredibly daring move, 
There were 18 of these guys. They took over the entire castle, and it became a Protestant safe house. I just cannot believe it. It's just the most amazing thing to me. Now, I, I don't condone the way they did it. It's just fascinating to me that 18 men took over an entire castle and turned it, and these are Protestants, and they turned it into a Protestant safe house, and the castle was immediately put under siege by Scottish forces because they had just killed basically... Because because in those days, the Catholics, they were so involved in politics. They were politicians, and they were closely affiliated with the royals. And so whenever Cardinal David Beaton was killed, it was an assassination. And so Scott, the Scottish army came and put the castle under siege. And somehow, there isn't a really a record of exactly, I don't know how this happened, but John Knox and other heretics... Somehow, whether they slipped through the Scottish army lines or however they did it, they managed, they, they all fled to St. Andrew's Castle. And the population of that castle went from the 18 men who were there to 120 people plus. And they basically, they formed a military group inside the castle. And yes, John Knox was in favor of this. John Knox throughout his life, he promoted and favored military action against the Catholics and against the royals. And we'll talk again about that later. But while he was in the castle, John had this reputation for his study of the word, but he still avoided preaching because he didn't feel like he was worthy because he had betrayed, in his mind, George Wishart. However, one day in a service, and I love this, this is, a, this is how... This is how God will call you. It's like Jonah. He didn't feel like he was worthy. He refused to follow his call. One day, he just happens to be attending a church service, and a man named Sir David Lindsay, who was a popular playwright in those days, Sir David had been chosen by other leaders basically to convince John to become one of the preachers of the castle. And so Sir David stands up in the service and he talks, he preaches on the power of the congregation, uh, the congregation coming to agreement on a certain matter, on a certain topic, and talks about how, how they, how, I mean, we know the scripture, right? Where two or more are gathered, I am there. If two or more, if you can agree on one thing, it will be done for you. These different scriptures. He preaches on this. And then he calls out John Knox in the middle of the service. And I'm going to paraphrase this. He says, in the name of God and Jesus Christ and of all others who call on you through me. And he's talking about the people who sent him. I charge you not to refuse this call on your life and that you give glory to God, the increase of Christ and his kingdom, the edification of your brothers and sisters and myself, whom you know very well is oppressed by a multitude of labors, that you take on the public office of a preacher and that you avoid God's heavy displeasure and desire that his grace be multiplied to you. And then Sir Lindsay, I imagine John Knox must have just been shocked sitting in the middle of the congregation getting called out like that. And then Sir Lindsay has the audacity after preaching on the power of the congregation to ask the entire congregation right there to vote as to whether or not John Knox should be a preacher or not. And he was, of course, unanimously voted for. And John was so mad that he left the service and refused to talk to anybody. Now, uh, however, he, he, of course, calmed down eventually, recognized the call of God on his life, and did indeed become 
begin his ministry as a preacher. But that's how John came into the ministry. It's just like Jonah. He was trying to run away from it, and God will find a way. If, if you have a call and you're still walking with the Lord, I'm telling you guys, I hear people almost every single day of my life in the ministry that I do, I hear people saying, oh, I want to be a pastor. I want to be a missionary. I want to do this and this and this. Let me tell you something. If you're seeking the Lord and you're taking steps like John Knox was, God will make a way. And even if you're scared to, like Knox was, God will find a way. You just have to stand firm and stand with Jesus and keep seeking him and he will do it. When John preached, he would take a day of the week to study, pray, and read different books. However, he believed in flowing with the Holy Spirit, which this is this is kind of a, this was common in the 1500s. And for some reason, it faded out as we went in more into like the 1800s. It became more common where people would just write down their sermons, and um, which is what a lot of people even, not so much today, we've kind of have a midway point. But John, what he would do is he would read and he would study, but he didn't write down his sermons or have any notes at all because he believed that the Holy Spirit should flow through him. And so today there actually is only one complete text of a sermon from him. There are like all kinds of writings from him. He did write a lot. So when I say that, there are books that he wrote. There are actually six volumes from him called just works. And then there's another one called history and just volumes and volumes of books that he wrote. But in terms of his sermons, of what he actually said verbatim in his sermons, there's only one recorded sermon of him. And so he was in this castle. He was nominated to be one of the preachers of the castle, but none of that lasted very long because in July of 1557, so that's the same year, this is just actually a few months after these 18 men took over the castle and all these Protestant refugees came in, that's just a few months later, the French king, Henry II, sent a fleet of ships for Scotland. So France, remember, was allied with Scotland, and they saw the Protestants basically as rebels. And so the French king sends in this whole fleet in order to break the siege because the Scots had not been able to take back St. Andrews, the castle. So the fleet was led by a man named Leon Strozzi, who was a knight of the Order of Malta and the commander of the Galley of Malta. Strozzi, he first of all, he attacked from the sea, so he had all these cannons on his ships, but it just didn't go very well. The biography doesn't really explain why it didn't go well, but it said that the, the ships actually suffered more losses than they gained in terms of like they, they didn't do enough damage to the castle to justify the the damage that they received. So remember the Protestants, they were fighting back. They were they were using military force. And so Strozzi, he took 14 cannons on land and basically uh, from what I understand he surrounded St. Andrew's Castle and just decimated it. There was nothing the Protestants could do. He just, because they, they couldn't get out from the siege, and so he just kept attacking the castle and castle uh, with all these cannons, and those living in the castle eventually surrendered, but interestingly, they chose to surrender to the French rather than the Scots, and I'm guessing because they assumed, that, and they were probably right, that the Scots would have immediately executed all of them for rebellion. So the French actually took them as slaves, and John Knox became a slave on a galley ship. 
and he spent 19 months as a galley slave, which was a brutal punishment. It's like uh, if you've seen those movies where you the, where you see the guys who they're they're in the bottom of a ship and their legs are chained and they just have those big wooden oars and they're all rowing together. That's exactly what John Knox did for 19 months, guys. His time on the ship severely damaged his health for the rest of his life. He suffered from stomach issues and migraines for the rest of his life because of that. Then after 19 brutal months, he was released, but not to Scotland. He actually found himself in England, which was ruled by King Edward VI. Now, King Edward VI was a Protestant king. And because he was a Protestant king, he actually gave a lot. Of course, I mean, it makes sense. He gave freedom to the Protestants. And for the first time in his life, Knox had the freedom to be a preacher of the gospel without any fear of persecution. And in his time in England, John was actually able to develop his abilities as a, as a preacher, but he also developed his boldness. If you remember, just a couple years before, whenever he was in the castle, he was scared to even preach. But then he became, he, he took a completely different turn and got bolder and bolder and started preaching outright because he's under a Catholic king. He had the freedom to do this. He started outright calling out the Catholic traditions that were still prevalent in many areas. Because even though that the king was, was Protestant, Catholicism was still practiced. And so he started specifically preaching about how many of the ways uh, of the way that mass was conducted was unbiblical. And he even went as far as to have public debates debates with the Catholic Church uh, church members and bishops. For example, the the teaching that when mass was taken that what they what they taught was and still is in the Catholic Church that whenever bread and wine are taken it literally becomes the body and blood of Jesus and he argued that this was not scriptural and over the course of his ministry John consistently and constantly challenged Catholic rituals I mean that that's what the Reformation was based on and he actually succeeded in a lot of his endeavors, just like much of the, the Protestant Reformation did, and he actually removed a lot of Catholic rituals from Scotland. Uh, for example, he believed that all man-made rituals, which he actually called superstitious ceremonies, all the way down to just making the sign of the cross, which is still done like all over the place, even as a joke in movies and stuff, he believed that those were all forms of idolatry, and he preached that they should all be stripped away and that Christianity should return to following only Scripture. Uh, another tradition that was very common in Knox's day was to name a child after a particular saint, and the belief was that if you named a child after a saint, that particular saint would protect the child throughout their life. And also, whenever children were baptized, which was a practice Knox followed, Knox actually practiced child baptism. He baptized his own children when they were when they were small. But in those days, when they did child baptism, the priest would actually do an exorcism on the child. And Knox did not believe that this was scriptural, so he did not allow that in his church. Whenever they would do this exorcism, what, what actually involved was putting spit on the baby's nostrils and ears and then salt in the baby's mouth and then blowing on the baby. And it's interesting that salt is often used in religious ceremonies. I even, this was not scriptural at all. I didn't agree with it, but I remember being associated with a group of ministers in Panama and they believed that salt 
Yeah, it's the same belief. They believe that salt drive would drive out demons and evil. And I mean, this is this is not right at all. So I this is wrong. But they, whenever someone felt like they may have like demonic oppression or something like that, they would bring out a bowl of salt and put them in front of the people. And these were Christians. But and so there's a lot of these, a lot of Catholic roots, and and there's a lot of witchcraft stuff involved in there. But we won't we won't get into that right now. But uh, salt does not drive out demons, guys. Only the name of Jesus does. So just take that home with you. And so these are the things that John preached against. And then in 1548, so he's preaching, he's there in England. And in 1548, he meets a young woman named Marjorie Bowes. And her mother, Elizabeth, had been a convert to Protestantism and was a supporter of the Reformation, but her husband was not. So because of that, it was interesting, John actually exchanged a lot of letters with Elizabeth, the mother, just sort of talking about the faith. And he ended up meeting Marjorie, and they fell in love. And uh, they wanted to get married, but Mr. Bowes and his brother, a noble named Sir Robert, were against the relationship because they saw Knox not only as a heretic, but as like a penniless preacher. And they also sided with the Catholic Church that priests should not get married. Remember that John Knox, he was a Catholic priest legally, and that wasn't something they could get out from under. So they said Knox is a priest. So they were against this marriage between Knox and Marjorie. And because of this, because in those days, the people, it was just a cultural thing where even uh, women, whenever they were adults, because they were the daughters, they, until they were married, they came under the authority of their parents. It didn't matter how old they were. And so because of this, Marjorie chose not to... Now, they, they were betrothed. Knox made a public confession of his love for her before witnesses and committed to marry her. But they did not get married for another seven years in 1555. So during those years, a lot happened. And we'll get into that in a moment, but I want to like continue with the relationship between Knox and Marjorie because it'll get lost in all of the this stuff if I don't. They communicated pretty much entirely through letters through the, the first four years. Well, I should say through the whole seven years because they didn't really see each other. Marjorie remained in her father's house under constant pressure and disapproval. While John traveled extensively, he was exiled. He was persecuted. In 1553, I mean, think about this. This is years later. In 1553, they had already been betrothed to be married for years even though they hadn't seen each other, they were both waiting for each other and faithful to each other. Queen Mary Tudor, again, we'll talk about her, Bloody Mary, uh, she came into power and reinstituted the law. So so uh, just to kind of clarify, the, the king, he was a Protestant. And then Queen Mary, Bloody Mary, when she came into power, she was a Catholic. She was the king's half-sister. And when he died, she, she uh, began to reign. And she immediately put into force these laws that were against the the protestants and so she made she reinstituted the law making it illegal for priests to marry so because knox was legally a catholic priest it legally made him unable to marry marjorie they weren't even together but they they were getting closer to wanting to get married and so this caused a lot of excitement for marjorie's father and sir robert who used this as an opportunity to put extreme pressure on Marjorie to abandon her engagement to Knox. 
but her mother encouraged her to stay with John because her mother was a Protestant and she now had a close friendship with John. And so Marjorie ended up siding with her mother. And then finally in 1555, after seven years of not seeing each other, John Knox and Marjorie were reunited and Marjorie did the unthinkable in those days and she eloped with John. She finally just abandoned her father because she knew her father would never agree with it and they ran away together. And this is the part that's crazy to me. On top of that, Elizabeth Bowes, she left her husband who, I mean, they, they, she eloped with John and Marjorie, left her husband, and never saw her husband again. And her husband, whenever he died in 1558, so just three years later, he didn't even mention Marjorie or Elizabeth in his, in his will. He never didn't even acknowledge that he had a wife and a daughter. And John Calvin, who, was, who met Marjorie later on in their lives, he was a big admirer of Marjorie. He said that she was a wife whose equal is not anywhere to be found. And so that's kind of the story, and, and we'll talk a little bit more about it, but that is how that is kind of the romance saga of John Knox and Marjorie Bowes. But let's backtrack a little bit to 1553 because this is whenever Bloody Mary came into power because everything changed for the Protestants in England whenever this happened. King Edward, the Protestant king, died, and his half-sister, Queen Mary Tudor, also known as Bloody Mary, began to reign. Bloody Mary got her name because she revived laws that were called the Heresy Acts, which basically gave herself and the Catholic Church the ability to punish anyone deemed a heretic, which at that time were the Protestants. And as a result, she executed 282 Protestant Christians, most of whom were burned at the stake. And this is where John's disdain and bitterness for women in power came into play. So let me read an excerpt from his very famous, or rather I should say his infamous tract that he published called The First Blast of the Trumpet Against the Monstrous Regiment of Women. He wrote this in 1558, which is an important date to remember. And here's the excerpt. It says, The Declamation. The proposition to promote a woman to bear rule, superiority, dominion, or empire above any realm, nation, or city is A, repugnant to nature, B, contumely to God, C, the subversion of good order of all equity and justice, A, Men illuminated only by the light of nature have seen and determined that it is a thing most repugnant to nature that women rule and govern over men. So this is, I do have to say, this was a fairly common belief during the Reformation, but John was really the most outspoken person against, or, or I should say, uh, no, I, I'm right, against women. Most of the preachers didn't really, they didn't publish tracts and documents like he did. but And he was wrong. Let me just say that. Uh, I, I do not agree with his teachings at all. But just so we see, like, I, I want to show how God can use people even with fall, flawed beliefs, major flaws. And in an age where there were a total of five female rulers throughout Scotland and England and other neighboring countries, you can imagine, I mean, think about this. John wrote this during a time where it was like, all women leaders. It was kind of an unprecedented time in the world where it, it was mostly females, if not all females, leading 
the, the world powers. And so whenever he wrote that, Knox's entire ministry and life changed. And that's it was because of that one tract well, not, and because of what he preached on it. He was and is still labeled a misogynist. Before now, now, before we write off John Knox because of his beliefs on women, I know it's horrible, but let's try to at least understand where his stance comes from. A lot of times we'll just completely write people off whenever they say things or, or believe a doctrine that's wrong or incorrect, and we just write them off without understanding why they believe what they believe. So first of all, we need to know he didn't just, just hate women, as some historians would say. He, he, wasn't just, he, like, he wasn't just born a misogynist who always hated women. That wasn't how it went. He lived at, during the time of Queen Mary Tudor, the woman known as Bloody Mary. She, had, she was the Queen of England from July 1553 until November 17, 1558. Now, if you know, if you listen to my podcast, episode two, on John Welch, then you know that the 1500s was whenever the Reformation began to, to gain its strength. And, and Queen Mary was a fierce opponent to the Reformation and killed over 280 Protestants. And many of these people were John Knox's friends, fellow ministers, and people that he loved and respected. That You have to understand that Queen, Queen uh, Bloody Mary, her father was King Henry VIII. And if you, if you may have heard of King Henry VIII from the, uh, the history books, he was the one known for having all the wives, right? The one who's like the one, uh, all of the jokes about like off with her head because he had all these wives and executed these different wives. And he also executed a reported up to actually beyond 72,000 people during his reign. However, despite all of this, during his reign, which Knox witnessed the end of, Henry VIII converted to Protestantism, although he only did it because the Pope would not annul his marriage to his first wife. So it was just a, a political move. But because that happened, he turned on the Catholic Church largely removed its power within England and opened wide the door for the Reformation to take place. So Knox, would have, dis while he would have disapproved of the king's sin, he would have seen his actions as God opening doors for the, for the Protestants to move forward. He would have seen it as a blessing, and he would have really enjoyed the freedom that the Protestants had during his reign. So then, whenever King Henry VIII's daughter came to rule and she turned on the Protestants... Uh, and killed many Protestant, prominent Protestant leaders, many of whom were his friends. This had a huge influence on John, and he saw it as this concept of uh, basically women, when they come into power, they are corrupted. And so he, that's when he began his sermons against women in authority. It's also important to understand that when this severe persecution broke out against the Protestants, it was so severe that John and most of the church believed that they were in the end time tribulation and, and that either Queen Mary was the Antichrist or that the royals in general of the day were the spirit of the Antichrist combined. Because there was Bloody Mary, but there was also Queen Mary of Scots, who if you remember who was coronated on day six when she was only six days old, she also became a Catholic, and she also was strongly against the Protestants. And so you, the two main places where John Knox is ministering, both England and Scotland, are ruled by women who their, their fathers 
were pro-Protestants and then their daughters were not. So John saw this as women who have power become corrupted because the men before them were for the work of what he said was the work of God, and then the women were against the works of God. And so this caused a serious bitterness in John towards women. And John, he was always heavily involved in politics during different times of his life. He would either publish open letters to the royals or preach directly about them when they would come to hear him preach. On one occasion, King Henry Darney, he came to one of his church meetings. Now, he was the husband of Bloody Mary, and, but, Queen, but it was a political marriage, so she still ruled, and he was just sort of on the side. And uh, Bloody Mary was the enemy of the Protestant church, and Knox saw Henry as like this useless... He was a king, but he didn't exercise any of his rule. And so King Henry, wanting to at least show some favor towards the Protestants, he went to a church service where John was preaching. And so John, I mean, they set up a special throne for him and everything in the church. And John preaches out of Isaiah 26, 13, and 14, which says this, O Lord our God, masters beside you have dominion over us, but by you alone we make mention of your name. They are dead. They will not live. He's he's talking about these rulers. They are deceased. They will not rise. Therefore, you have punished them and destroyed them and made all their memory to perish. And then he went on to quote uh, in scripture to quote the following, I will give children to be their princes and babes will rule over them. Children are their oppressors and women rule over them. Referring to Queen Mary, Bloody Mary, and also a jab at King Henry's lack of leadership. In another part, he referred to God's displeasure against Ahab because he did not correct his idolatrous wife Jezebel. He never outright rebuked the king there in the service, but everyone, including King Henry, knew who he was talking about, and the king got so mad he refused to eat dinner that night. So, and, and then later that night, John Knox was summoned before the council and several powerful and influential friends of his came along, John's friends, they came along, the, the, uh, they wanted to support him in all of this. And the secretary of the council cho- told John how mad the king was at his sermon and that his punishment was that he couldn't preach for 15 to 20 days. That's, um, they knew they couldn't execute him because he was so influential. It would have caused a major uprising, so he couldn't preach. And this is, this is just amazing to me how bold John was. John's response was basically, and I'm paraphrasing this from the old, old English, which is like really hard to understand in, in the original, but it says, I don't know what you guys are talking about. I never said anything about the king. That was just my sermon. And then he told them that he would only stop preaching if his church leaders asked him to. If his church elders told him to stop, it was another slap in the face to King Henry, saying that the leaders in the kingdom of God are the only one he are the only ones he truly will obey. So the king and queen, they left a couple days later, and as far as we know, John never followed the punishment and was never stopped. And that that is the power and influence of this man. Isn't that just isn't that just crazy? After this ordeal, someone asked him why he preached that particular sermon when the king was present, and he responded, "If any will ask to what purpose this sermon is set forth, I answer, to let such as Satan has not altogether blinded see upon how small occasions great offenses are now conceived." 
it sounds like uh, John knew a little bit something, something uh, a little bit of what we call the cancel culture today. Of course, he did it on a much bigger level, but it was nothing new. It's not progressive. People are just nitpicky, and they always are going to try and find something to cancel and boycott and all this. Enemies of truth have always ranted and raved and nitpick, and they always will until King, until King Jesus comes back. And uh, so John, he basically was just like, I want to get a rise out of people, which is hilarious to me. So over, over the next few years, during the reign of Bloody Mary, Knox continued ministering and fighting in what he really believed was the end times final battle. During all of these things, there were all kinds of turmoil and confusion. John Calvin, his hero, gets caught up in one of the biggest stains on his story where he urged local authorities in Geneva, Switzerland, to execute one of his rivals as a heretic. So John Calvin, he uh, he had a man executed. His rival was a man named Michael Servetus, and he had been a part of the Reformation movement, but event- eventually rejected the doctrine of the Trinity, and he instead followed the Catholic teach- teaching of Christology. So Calvin essentially had a man who had been an ally in the movement executed over doctrinal differences. And he di- so he did the exact same thing that the Catholic Church was doing to the Protestants. And again, these are reasons why people, people like John Calvin and John Knox, while they were wildly effective in, in the way that God used them in the Reformation, these things that they did caused them to, over time, fade from being examples of men of God because they did they murdered, they did violent things. And this didn't sway John Knox at all from following Calvin. He actually probably even supported that execution because John Knox himself supported a lot of violent movements. And so in the late 1550s, John had moved to Geneva, Switzerland, where John Calvin lived. He wanted to be near his hero. And he, along with a group of influential Protestant leaders, formed what was called the Geneva Bible. They, the Geneva Bible, they finished the New Testament in 1557 and the whole complete Bible in 1560. And the Geneva Bible was the world's first study Bible and was considered the most reader-friendly Bible of its day and was by far the most popular English Bible in Europe and by the settlers of North America. It was used by Oliver Cromwell and his his people, William Shakespeare, John Donne, John Bunyan, who wrote The Pilgrim's Progress. That was the Bible that was taken by the passengers of the Mayflower when they settled in America. It was incredibly popular. The King James Bible didn't even come out for another 51 years, which again, if you want to hear about that, listen to episode two. It will explain more about the King James Bible. But the Geneva Bible was the first Bible printed in Scotland in 1579. And because of the impact of John Knox and John Calvin their, and their hand in this Bible, the, the Geneva Bible, they, there was actually a law passed that year requiring every household with the money to do so to buy a Bible. Can you imagine living in a country where by law you have to have a Bible in your house. Now, if you remember, I mentioned to you early, earlier about how in 1558, John had written his trumpet blast against women. And he was. it's interesting because when he wrote it, he was thinking of it as being directed towards Bloody Mary and Queen Mary of Scots. He had no idea that, idea that Bloody Mary was actually dying of what many people believe was uterine cancer, 
He published this book thinking he was attacking this queen who had been their enemy for so long, but then she died and her half-sister, Queen Elizabeth, took the throne. And when this happened, Queen Elizabeth, she was in favor of the Protestants. She was, she was in favor of uh, what she called religious tolerance and basically freedom of religion. And it brought peace over Scotland and over England for the Protestants. And so John actually left Geneva to go back to Scotland because Queen Elizabeth was more favor- favorable and he thought that it would be safe for him. But because of his anti-women booklet that came out right as she began to reign, she actually saw it as a personal attack against her by John and not against Queen Bloody Mary. And so even though John thought everything was safe, everything actually changed for him. And so whenever he arrived in Scotland, there was a woman named King Mary of Geis, and she was the regent queen of Scotland, basically the one who was reigning in place of Queen Mary when she was not present. And she had also been offended by John's booklet and declared John to be an outlaw. And the people who had been his, many of the people who had been his allies, because they were finally under this time of peace, and they were under these, this, this, uh, the Queen, Queen Elizabeth, who was giving freedom to the Protestants. They wanted to stay in her good graces. So they actually turned on John Knox, and they had been his ally before, and they accused him of being a traitor. And so angry, I mean, John Knox, he was so influential that when this happened, angry mobs formed, rioting happened, looting happened because he was declared an outlaw. So some people took his side. Some people sided with the Protestants and with John Knox. Other people sided with the, the Queen of Scotland. And basically, John Knox had a whole army at his back. It brought Scotland almost to a point of total war, so much so that the English sent soldiers in towards the end of it and uh, to back John and the Protestants to bring freedom for them. Because even though Queen Elizabeth of England, uh, even though she was offering freedom, the Queen Mary of Scots in Scotland was still against the Protestants. So there was all this fighting that was happening. And it got so bad that John actually attempted to communicate with the Queen, Queen Mary of Scots, uh, or the Queen Regent, sorry, and trying to explain that it was pointed at Queen Mary, Bloody Mary, but this woman, uh, this queen, she refused to, uh, Queen Mary of Geis, refused to forgive him because she still thought it was a personal thing against him. And so it got so crazy for him that he attempted to reason with her chief advisor, a man named William Cecil. He knew that William wouldn't listen to him if he just wrote on, as he his his name John Knox, so he actually took on a pseudonym, a fake name, and he went by the name John Sinclair. And one of the most interesting notes about John Knox, uh, which was surprisingly common for, among the reformers, was their approval of violence. I still find that shocking. Like whenever, oftentimes, whenever people talk about the Reformation, and again, I talk about, I talk about how. Uh, people, when they talk about moves of God and all these things, they usually skim over the bad parts. And the Reformation, while it was wonderful for the church, it was backed by a lot of violence. And whenever John Knox, who was who approved of this fighting in Scotland, by the way, when he was asked why he approved of war and violence, he responded, the Reformation is somewhat violent, which is an understatement. 
because the adversaries are stubborn. And Martin Luther, the man who sparked the Reformation, said in one of his addresses to the to German princes, he says, it is right and lawful to slay at the first opportunity a rebellious person who is known as such, for he is already under God's and the emperor's band. And then he said, therefore, whosoever can should smite, strangle, and stab secretly or publicly, and should remember that there is nothing more poisonous, pernicious, and devilish than a rebellious man. And he was talking about people who were rebelling against the, the, uh, the Reformation. Because the and at that time the Reformation was actually winning; it was taking effect, and there were people still landing up, uh, st- uh, standing up against it. And so he said, "Just as you must slay a mad dog, if you do not fight the rebels, they will fight you and the whole country with you." So this is just that was just a, a crazy thing to me that they they fully favored and embraced war against the Catholics and the royals. So in 1561. Uh, Queen Mary of Geist died, and then Queen Mary of Scots returned to Scotland to rule. Now, Mary of Scots, uh, I guess with age and because of the turmoil that was happening in her country, she was more open now to the idea of freedom of belief. I guess she probably saw the passive effect that it had or pacifying effect that it had on England, and it opened her up to the idea as well. So, she uh, allowed more freedom for the Protestants. However, because of John's booklet against women, he called her to explain why he had written that. Because once again, there were all these female rulers. It was mostly women ruling the, the known world at that time in Europe. And so she also was offended by the booklet against women. And he asked her to explain himself. And John, it's so uh, like he he's just such a wild man. He told her, that she shouldn't be offended because it didn't affect her. It didn't affect her rule, and so she shouldn't be offended by it. And he said that if she wanted to keep the Protestants, or that if she would keep the peace with Protestants, he would keep peace with her, and meaning that he wouldn't keep calling her out and offending her. So she agreed to this. Uh, John, of course, could not live without stirring up trouble and was summoned many other times throughout her life. Uh, and his life to explain his actions to her. Interestingly, there were times when it was actually Mary of Scots who was in the right on some of these issues. For example, there was one occasion where some Catholic priests held a public mass, and this is after this was after the Reformation had been solidified and was strong. And so the uh, the Catholics were kind of they were on their heels at that point. At this point, they. The Protestantism had been accepted by royals, and so Catholic priests were actually not allowed to hold like public mass. It was illegal. And so whenever some Catholic priests went and held, held uh, public mass, John Knox and other Protestants went and did, what is it called, a citizen's arrest, and arrested these, these Catholic priests. And so King Mary of Scott, Scots summoned John and asked him to learn to respect other people's beliefs if he wanted others to respect his. And he told her, man, this guy, he is amazing how, how and not in a good way, how bold he was. Because scripturally, in scripture, not even Jesus talked to kings and, and, and no prophet, man of God, woman of God, talked to uh, royalty the way that he did. So he was not scriptural in the way he did things. But this is what he said. 
he told her that it was her responsibility to enforce the law. And if she didn't, he would. So John, as was his entire life's custom, he offended Queen Mary of Scots once again and caused a whole bunch of controversy because uh, his wife had died a few, uh, Marjorie, which I, I, I don't think we actually went into that, but she, she died. We don't know why she died, but she died a few years before, uh, I believe in 1960, uh, sorry, <laughs> 1560. And he had, been, he had been left with two young boys on his own. And so he ended up marrying a woman named Margaret Stewart. And it was controversial for different reasons, but one of them, which is would have been super controversial today, of course, he whenever he married Margaret, he was 54 years old and she was only 17. And that kind of marriage was actually fairly common in those days because a lot of people married for political or logistical reasons rather than love. John had two previous children from his marriage to Marjorie and needed help with them. And Margaret was also related to Queen Mary of Scots, which put John in a really strong position politically. And also during the Reformation, a lot of of people, a lot of priests who had converted to Protestantism, they married simply as a political statement because to separate themselves from the Catholics. And so with with uh, uh, Margaret, he had three daughters, the youngest of which was Elizabeth Knox, the future wife of John Welch, as again, you can hear in episode two. But the controversy was actually not over the age difference between them, as one would think, but it was because of Margaret's relationship to the queen. In Scotland in those days, anyone related to the royal family had to get permission from her, from Queen Mary, to get married, and neither Margaret nor John Knox asked for permission for her from her, which made her angry once again at Knox. And the anger was also partially fueled by the fact that John Knox had been openly criticizing Queen Mary's own new marriage to Don Carlos, the son of Philip II of Spain. And so John, he spent the rest of his days continuing to live as he always had, causing controversy, doing unexpected things, challenging royals, causing conflicts. But he truly changed Scotland, and the fruit of his life continues today. And apart from all of the negative things that we talked about in this podcast and positive things, allowing the Reformation to happen in Scotland and leading the charge, he also did a lot of other things we just don't have time to get into in this podcast but he wrote what was called an order for a general fast. Up to that point, fasting was not a focal point in the church, but this teaching from John had a far and deep, a very far-reaching impact and brought fasting and seeking the gift of prophecy back into the daily life of the Scottish Christians. Fasting in those times was usually done on Wednesday by the church, and usually it meant just eating no meat or sometimes they would eat only bread and water. Eventually, John Knox was presented with the King James Bible at the end of his life, uh, which he, he, he apparently did like, but uh, he mostly preferred the Geneva Bible, which, of course, he had been a part of creating, so that made, that made sense. And after an exceptionally hard life on November 24th, 1572, John Knox knew he was dying, And his body had been ravaged from years of hardship, slavery, persecution, stress, and more. He had pneumonia, and he knew he wasn't going to recover. 
And so he asked his young young wife to read from John chapter 17. And John chapter 17, he had always referred to as his first anchor. And she read to him and she he said goodbye to fellow ministers and friends and family. And around 11 p.m. that night, his last words were, now it is done. And then he breathed his last. He was buried at the cemetery in St. Giles Cathedral in Scotland. However, the exact place of his grave is unknown because the churchyard was destroyed in 1633. Uh, I think one of the best ways to sum up John Knox was said at his grave by James Douglas, the fourth Earl of Morton. And he said this, he said, here lies one who never feared any flesh. And I believe that that, those are really solid words about John. So uh, that's his story. And I want to thank you for listening Uh, If you haven't already, please rate this podcast and leave a five-star review for me. That really helps me out. Come back next Thursday for an amazing episode. And also, if you have some, maybe there's someone else you know that you would like to, uh, uh, for me to do a profile on, or maybe you know someone really interesting that uh, would be interesting to have a a interview with that maybe you have a connection with that you could help me set set up an interview. I'm looking, just so you know, I'm looking for people who are having an impact. So not not just any person that like your buddy who likes to read a lot or anything like that. Somebody, I want to have interviews with people who are actually doing something. They don't have to be, have a big ministry or a famous ministry or anything like that, but they have to be doing something for the kingdom of God that is having an effect in the area because this is about revival carriers and uh, people who bring revival. Revival is change. So also don't forget to join the Revival Carriers podcast Facebook page. That's I'm using trying to use that more and more. I'm going to put up a picture of my new fancy or not so fancy, I should say, rustic recording area, which I'm kind of liking more than the basement. It's been a lot more peaceful here. And so uh, say hello. I'd love to talk to you guys and uh, stay tuned for next Thursday. Thank you for joining. God bless and have a great rest of your week. 